views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of Black Talks. Reparations, conversation, reparations, conversation, reparations. Uh, welcome to another installment of Conversation Reparations brought to you by Cobra. Uh, my name is Brother Jimoke Tayo. I currently serve as the Southeast Regional Representative of Cobra and also the male chair, co-chair of the Atlanta chapter of Cobra. So we've been bringing you these uh, radio shows since for, um, excuse me, for twice a month, first and third, and on Monday of the month, and then we plan to either in September or by, by for sure by October, we're going to go ahead and take a leap and move towards every Monday. So today, what we want to bring to you is a conversation around, um, actually many years ago, uh, I, I remember sitting and talking to one of my elders, and he said, you know, in Cobra, y'all going about everything all wrong. You're going about it all wrong. And, of course, I got kind of defensive before, he even, before I even heard him out what he was saying. I said, what do you, well, then, so then I asked him, so what are you talking about? What are you talking about? He said, well, you all are focusing on getting African-American support for reparations. He said, that's pretty much a given. What you need to be focusing on is getting European-American support or white people support for reparations because that's the, you know, you're going to have to have a certain critical mass of them to support um, any type of reparations that would happen. And I was like, okay, I see where you're going with that. So in, in, in light of that conversation, uh, we're having a uh, theme for this show. We'll be looking at um, European American support for reparations. Um, and, and just like that movement has, just like the reparations movement has been building steam, likewise there has been more and more uh, European support for uh, reparations, not just politically, but actually most of the support has come out of the uh, faith traditions because there have been many um, uh, nat- national church denominations that have passed resolutions in support of reparations in support of H.R. 40. Um, and so However, we do feel like they could be doing a lot more, and we are um, working on engaging them in doing a lot more besides just passing a resolution. 
Uh, it kind of makes sense, though, that there would be a call uh, or an early push for reparations coming from the church because the church should be, is moving from an issue of looking at reparations from the issue of repentance and, um, yeah, and making amends and reconciliation. And so uh, it makes sense that we would hear um, some of the leadership for the call of European Americans to support reparations coming from the church and uh, faith-based traditions. Uh, we could also add to that list, for example, uh, Marianne Williamson, who is now a current uh, candidate for presidency, and she has been talking about reparations for some years now and has written about it in her books as well. Uh, so she, uh, I know a lot of people say that some of the Democratic pre uh, presidential candidates are, uh, are just speaking that because it's you know politically uh, expedient for them or they want the black vote or whatever. And so I can't speak to what their level of integrity is or about reparations, but I, I do feel um, the level of integrity that Marion Williamson has presented, as I said before, because she has been speaking about reparations for years now, even before she uh, announced that she was going to run for um, the presidency. And when she did announce that, she did um, make it plain that reparations was something that was an important um, platform piece in her uh, candidacy. And not only that, I have been following her since she's been running for office and she continues to raise it up. Um, she it raised up in the debate stage, but not only that, when she's been um, in the community talking to people in South Carolina and in other states on the campaign trail, she continues to uh, raise the issue of reparations. Brother Jamoke. And she, yes, sir. Um, yeah, good evening to you and good evening to the listeners. And just to let let the listeners know, I'll be chiming in a little tonight um, as Brother Jamoke is hosting by himself tonight. Um, shout out to Sister Bonita. Hope she's doing well. Yeah, thank you, brother. Thank you. Yeah, her family. <laughs> um, but on the question of integrity that you raise, you know, obviously mm -hmm. you can't speak to what's in a person's heart or what their intent right. is behind what they're saying. But I would think that a good indicator of their integrity on H.R. 40 or, or the Senate version of it, uh, we're speaking about a senator, is their integrity in other matters. I mean, like, for example, uh, Kamala Harris co-sponsored um, Medicare for All, you know, the health care mm -hmm. bill that would mm -hmm. be universal health care. But then... It came out that she went, I think she was in the Hamptons um, doing a fundraiser with some wealthy donors, and then she was telling them something different, like, oh, well, I really got problems with the bill, and I don't support it as is, so if I can't, you know, uh, um, if a person doesn't have integrity um, to the point that they would co-sponsor something and then uh, uh, tell some wealthy donors something entirely different than what they said publicly, then I would have to say that I don't trust her on reparations either, you know. So I, I, well, I would just add that. Well, sure, that's a good point. I'm, I'm not able to speak about that specific example that you gave. However, we do know, um, you know, that there is a pattern of politicians saying one thing in one location and saying something else in another. You know, um, you know, I remember I used to share with people 
um, you know, that, you know, the location and, and the context of what people say is always important. One example I used to use was Ronald Reagan um, one time gave a speech where he was strongly in support of unions. And he, he goes on and on talking about the importance of union, union organizing and everything like that. And we know that he helped to uh, break the, 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 um, one, the airport uh, traffic controllers union in the United States as well as was not any no time in the United States that he talked favorably about unions. That statement, that, he, that speech he did make in favor about unions was when he was in Poland <laughs> where he could speak about uh, where he t- chose to speak in favor of unions. So, yeah, we do know politicians say one thing in one audience and say something else in another audience. Um, so yeah, so you know that's just that just goes along with that almost uh, this one that almost goes along with that that position, you know that um, that, that uh, occupation, yeah. So uh, again, and uh, you know, Marion Williamson not coming from a political background, but coming from a, a spiritual background or religious background, being a, a, a spiritual teacher and and motivational um, spiritual teacher, I think. Again, is a different type of person than than say a Kamala Harris or or, or any of those uh, others that are that are in elected office um, currently. But um, so yeah, so we want to um, uh, just kind of I, I uh, set up uh, several clips so we can hear people um, speaking about um, why uh, European Americans should support reparations. So um, one of the the people who has been a um, scholar and activist around this issue is um, Dr. Jennifer Harvey. Uh, I had the chance to meet her, and she came to Atlanta. I also interviewed her a couple times on another radio show that I was hosting. And um, she has a book called Dear White Christians, and so we're going to hear uh, an interview and she's um, being asked about that book and uh, why she um, supports reparations. Now, this is a 17-minute clip. Um, how far into it do you want me to go, or you could just let me know when you want me to stop it? Oh, okay, then. We'll do that. I'm Rachel Bomberger with Erdman's Publishing. I'm here with Jennifer Harvey. Um, welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Rachel. It's good to be here. Can you tell me a little bit first about yourself? Uh, I'm a professor, professor of religion and ethics at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, I am a parent. I have two young children. Um, I was raised in the church and have a lifelong um, engagement with Christian communities. I'm ordained in the American Baptist churches. And I teach undergraduates. Excellent. It's a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about your new book. So my new book is called Dear White Christians, For Those Still Longing for Racial Reconciliation. And it's a book that's very near and dear to my heart because I've spent about 20 years um, working with, living with, struggling towards an understanding of why it is that um, we remain so alienated um, racially in the United States still all these decades after the civil rights movement and what it means for those of us who are white Christians mm-hmm. to take that alienation and that brokenness seriously and want to be part of healing it and mending it 
And so the book is about what it what it might mean for um, Christians generally, but white Christians in particular, to um, to really consider what it would mean to repent and to mm -hmm. repair um, and to move into relationships and postures and ways of being that I think God calls us to mm -hmm. um, around healing and um, reconciliation. Now, in the book, um, you make a big point of, uh, or you bring in very frequently this, this famous quote about 11 o'clock Sunday morning yeah. being the most segregated hour in America. Yes. Why, tell me about that. Yeah. Why do we still have a problem? Well, that quote's very important because those of us Christians, and not just white Christians, Christians of many different racial and ethnic groups, right. I think, often will claim and say that quote, which is a true reality, that oh, our churches are very sure. racially separated. Um, and we say it as a lament. We're very mm -hmm. sad that our, ra our churches seem to be racially divided. And because of that, um, that lament, we, especially white Christians, have spent has been significant amounts of time and energy and educative um, work since the civil rights movement mm -hmm. trying to teach Christians about reconciliation. Yes. Reconciliation would be the, the antidote to 11 o'clock being the most segregated hour. And reconciliation is a great word, it's a great, great word. concept. And it's, and it's a call, I think, Christians, many Christians believe we have been given, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is we've, 40 years after the civil rights movement, 50 years, 60 years, we still don't see reconciliation, and I'm really convinced that's because we have misunderstood the work required. Mm -hmm. So when we worry first about racially divided churches and we seek reconciliation, we don't ask ourselves, why are we so separated? Mm -hmm. And the reason we're separated, I think, is that white Christians largely have failed still to repent and to repair our racial, our racial relationships. And that's why we're not reconciled. Uh -huh. So I really um, try and show in a loving, constructive way in the book how if we actually stopped trying to work on reconciliation, not because I don't believe in that, yeah. but because it's not, it isn't working for very important reasons mm. that our energy towards repentance and repair might birth something new that is much more in line with what God wills for us as a church. Yeah. So maybe we can't move forward together and let bygones be bygones when we still have unfinished business. Exactly, exactly. We have much unfinished business, which yeah. given the events of the fall in this country, I don't think anyone would, would um, well, I'm sure there are some that would argue that, but many, many Christians w would, I think, be willing to say, yeah, we have real, real work to do. So what yeah. is the work? I think this, this book helps, them, helps us talk about the work in some really different potentially transformative ways. Yeah. Now, in the book, you argue against the reconciliation paradigm and yes. for a reparations paradigm. Yes. Now, you like to start a controversy because <laughs> reconciliation, great word. Reparations, yep. not such a great word yeah. for most people in yes. this country. Why did you choose that particular term to describe the approach you feel is needed? And, and what do you convey with that? That's a great question. Reparations is a very controversial word for many reasons. One of those reasons is when people hear it, they think we're talking about sending individuals a paycheck. Right. That is not what reparations is, either in my usage nor in the legal usage. Reparations basically means if something has been unjustly taken, mm -hmm. 
the person or community that has that thing, that value, whatever it is, is obligated to give it back. Mm. That's a reparation. And to try and make it right. Even if, say, the thing that was taken was taken by your great-great-grandmother? Yes. In, in legal terms, you're not responsible in a guilt way right. for what your grandmother took. But if you have it because she unjustly took it, you have to give it back. Right. That's, I mean, if my grandmother stole a car and gave it to me, I'm not going to jail, yeah. but I have to give the car back, right? right? And, and, and most of us wouldn't argue that. Of course it's not my car. Mm. So by using the phrase reparations, the reason I use that is because it's accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it's not as simple as saying, no one would argue, even those who've been working on reparations in this country for a long time, that it's an easy, um, that we have an easy, clear way to think about what reparations would look like, yeah. right? Whether we're talking about, I mean, the issue I think about most often is the issue of the enslavement of people of African descent. Yeah. Um, but um, if we're, so if we're talking about reparations for slavery, we're a ways from knowing what a good repair, what an appropriate yeah. repair looks like, though many activists and lawyers and scholars have actually been working for some time yeah. to to lay a case of what that could look like, to make right what has been yeah. taken and then over time accumulated in terms of unjust benefit mm-hmm. and ongoing harm. So I chose that term because it's accurate, because it's concrete, mm-hmm. and if we really, if 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 someone who picks up this book does so because he or she is serious about wanting reconciliation, which I am very serious about reconciliation, yeah. um, I'm very convinced that repairing, repairing is the work. Mm-hmm. And so reparations make sense in that way. And now that might look many different, re- what reparations might look like might vary a lot. Yeah. But that's why I chose the word. Yeah. Well, can you give us some small idea of what Christian churches wanting to engage in this work of reparation, what would that look like on a practical level? Great question. So I I think for many congregations, the first thing I would say to them practically is this is a slow one step at a time endeavor. Mm-hmm. And the first thing it would look like would be doing some inquiry into their own experience of race. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that happens in reconciliation um, attempts is we talk a lot, especially white Christians, about people of color. Mm-hmm. White people in the United States have a race, have a racial identity. Yeah. It came from somewhere. Mm-hmm. It has impacted us deeply and thoroughly. Yes. And so one amazingly transformative practical thing to do for a congregation is to start by thinking about that, reading about mm-hmm. that, talking about that with each other. And some might some of us who are white might go, Well, how do you even do that? We don't yeah. which shows us how much we don't think about white as a race. Yeah. Once we do start doing that, a very soon, um, soon thereafter, it becomes very easy to see some of the ways that being white in the United States has brought with it certain kinds of benefit, whether we wanted it or not, right? Mm-hmm. Many of us grieve this benefit, but benefit that has come at the cost of others, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, um, studying the history of whiteness in mm-hmm. the United States, we would learn, oh, when, you know, when, when in the 30s and 40s, the federal government knew mm-hmm. that housing mortgages was the way to elevate folks out of poverty and build wealth, they designed loan programs that white Americans could access. 
right? Most African-Americans could not access those programs. And we, our history is replete with those kinds of examples that have, over time, impacted our communities. So a second then pragmatic thing a church can do is by having done good work thinking about their own racial identity, what that has meant, learning some of their history, depending where they are, is looking around in their community. The, the legacies of racial injustice or the histories of injustice in this country are everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think for congregations to explore what locally that looks like, does that mean that in, in your city um, some communities still don't have access to quality education? That's a legacy of slavery. <laughs> That's a legacy <laughs> of injustice. We could work to repair that, mm-hmm. right? And not from a model that says, oh, this is a charity. We're doing something nice for people who are struggling. Yeah. No. Not a handout. Not a handout. A repair mm-hmm. where I say, oh, if my kids have access to these schools, mm-hmm. they are in a relationship to children who, don't have, who have access to a very different kind of school, and so we owe them something, right? Yeah. That's the relationship is the is at that is that material concrete level. I hope that Christians in particular, though I think actually many folks who are not Christian could also would really resonate strongly with much that's in the book. But I really hope that Christians who genuinely want a interracial, diverse, multiracial faith brother and sisterhood mm-hmm. to be a reality. I hope I want them to read this book mm-hmm. because I believe there are many Christians who long for that and genuinely, mm-hmm. genuinely do so. And I think it's achievable. Yeah. I think we haven't been using the right tools. Mm-hmm. And so I want those folks to read this book because I think this book is a very, is a very hopeful book. Yeah. I wrote it from a place of love. Yeah. <laughs> and what I want them to get from the book is that we can do it. Mm-hmm. We, I think white Christians struggle to talk about race and I watch I work with lots of young people and I watch white students be terrified when we're going to talk about race and when we start doing it and and we work with some of the um, histories that are in the book and some of the questions that are in the book I watch them kind of breathe this huge huge sigh of relief and realize not only can they talk about race can they own our racial history but it's liberating to do so it feels Mm -hmm. good to 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 Feel like you can set things right. Yeah. Even if that's going to be a long-term imperfect process. I mean, we'll never fully set these things right in this country. But the work of doing it is very liberating. So I hope that that's what people get out of this book. So they don't have to live with the the deep ache of feeling like something's wrong and everything you're doing isn't working. That's right. That's right. And, you know, and there's, we, we don't have a good racial conversation in this country, mostly because white Americans and even white Christians have resisted having that conversation. So much of what in the book is in the book is not new. Mm-hmm. Black Christians have been saying it for a very long time <laughs> and in the late 1960s uh-huh. said it very explicitly said to white Christians in the late 1960s the civil rights movement as courageous, brilliant, incredible as it is, the vision of beloved community that it that it sort of put out there for Christians to embrace, mm-hmm. it's not enough. Yeah. And then late, the late 1960s, black Christians started saying that more and more. And white Christians in the late 1960s, that's when we really stopped allying with the civil rights movement was mm-hmm. when black Christians started saying that. So the book really lifts up those voices. It's not my idea. It's, yeah. it's, it's voices that white Christians um, 
really stopped listening to in the late 1960s who've been continuing to say this is what needs to be done it's mm-hmm. actually it's it's hard but it's not that hard it's it's not that hard because there's no secret about what's required black christians have been telling white christians for a very long time what's required yeah. we what's hard is we have to decide we want to do it yeah but wow if we did we could change so many communities we could change this country i really believe that yeah so a little bit of tough love in the book yeah tough love <laughs> tough love towards myself too yeah. i mean it's it's you know i'm writing from a place as a white christian myself who this is a personal struggle it, this is yeah. not about oh this bad community over here or this good community you know this is about how do i make sense of this yeah what legacy do i leave my children now how is how has your <clears throat> identity as one of these white Christians both been an obstacle to you in thinking about race, but also allowed you to have extra insight and to be a bridge? Mm. Well, it's been an obstacle in the same way it's an obstacle for many white people. Mm -hmm. It's um, when you are, when you grow up in a society, even among very loving human beings who want to talk about what is good and what is right and what love looks like, All right, we can but who never engage with you about the close. Yes, yes. So, um, yeah. So again, that's um, Dr. Jennifer Harvey, and I know that um, um, I haven't spoke to her recently, recently, but I had. Um, I'm Jonathan that Brown, I know CEO. Drops.com, and I'm here to give you the naked truth about. Sorry about that. I was trying to prepare the next clip, and it started automatically. Sorry. Oh, uh, okay. I didn't know we were doing a promo because I know we're close to nine thirty. So we want to go ahead and do the promo. Uh, sure, sure. We'll go ahead and Thanks, run that. Ready. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for podcasts and live program scheduling. Visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Yes, back to, um, welcome back to Conversation Reparations. And so uh, you just heard from um, Dr. Jennifer Harvey being interviewed about her book and her ideas around why the white church, um, why white Christians should really get behind reparations, particularly those who feel like they are sincere about wanting some type of racial harmony or racial reconciliation, that reparations uh, is that first step that needs to happen before that could ever uh, be a, a reality. And what she was alluding to in, in the late 1960s is something that we also talked about on another on a previous show, which is the Black Manifesto. Um, this essay happens, to, which was introduced in April 26, 1969. This actually happens to be the 50th anniversary of the Black Manifesto, um, where James Foreman put out a um, statement calling for white church denominations to support, put money into a reparations fund, where he clearly outlined how that money would be used and those, um, most of the white church, well, some of the white, what, the white church denominations um, responded in several ways. Some just outright just rejected it. Others um, said that they, and others said that they supported the idea of reparations, but they wanted to create their own uh, reparations fund or reparations commission, and that they would create, they would put the people on there to manage it themselves. And that's the, what she was alluding to, is the, she feels like a mistake that the um, white Christians made and not just honoring the call of, of the Black Manifesto um, that was voted on by 
uh, other um, activists um, um, that James Woman had put forward. And so, and then other churches basically said also that, you know, yeah, well, we, we uh, understand the idea to, of reparations, but we are already have, you know, millions of dollars or X amount of money committed to programs, helping low-income communities and things like that. So we feel like we're already um, handling it. So, yeah, that's, and she actually speaks, uh, she has actually several chapters in her book that talk about the Black Manifesto and analyze the Black Manifesto and what happened there. I think, like I said, we, we kind of went in a little more depth about that on another show, so I'm not going to revisit that too much. Um, can but I make some is, uh, quick observations? Mm-hmm, um, yeah. Um, the quote they were talking about Sunday morning, 11 a.m., being the most segregated mm-hmm. hour, that's from Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., um, that's where yep. that quote comes from. And then when mm-hmm. she said, when she mentioned what you just got through talking about in the late 1960s, and then I don't know if this was the time that Dr. King, um, you know, there's there's footage of him saying we going to Washington, D.C. to get our check after talking that's about correct. how the U.S. government had given its European peasant class all of this land and and other resources so that they could be successful in farming the land and all of that. So, you know, when she mentioned the civil rights movement, you know, his name is synonymous with that. And, you know, also I I would say that the white Christian community parted with with people like Dr. King, um, in addition to him saying we coming to get our check, you know, he spoke out against the war against Vietnam. And, you know, he pretty much was assassinated not uh, too long after. Um, Now, the thing that I don't agree with her on is check. If it takes the form of a check, then it should be a check. This stuff about education. See, this is why, you know, uh, um, for example, you could call what some of Bernie Sanders proposals like Medicare for all. Who suffers from a lack of health care more than black people in this country? When you talk about free college for all, as she was talking about education, who will be helped more than black people uh, in this country with such with such a policy? Uh, student loan debt forgiveness, all of that student loan just wiped out. That will help black people more than it will help any anybody. So there are p- policies and platforms which will help repair us, but I wouldn't classify them as reparations because they're not specifically for us, even though I feel they will help us the most. And so that's why I say you can't rule out a monetary benefit. I mean, hell, you got some of the presidential candidates talking about a universal basic income, you know, of giving everybody a thousand dollars a month. How come you can't do that as a form of reparations monetarily for, um, um, you know, African-Americans who um, are victims or descendants of victims of slavery. Right. And, and uh, yeah, and then another example is also, um, you know, Cory Booker has a, a put forward idea of baby bonds where, uh, you know, when a child is born, a family a money would be put into an account for that child and more money would be put into an account for children of African descent such that when they become 18, they would have, you know, a sizable amount of money to use for starting their own business or going to college or just have a sizable amount of money to start off in life leaving, you know, their parents' home at 18. But, yeah, I, I, I hear you. And, you know, that is always 
I think, you know, one of the things, and it, it'll come up in another clip we're going to play, so I'll go ahead and say that now, which is, you know, one of the things that's, that, well, first of all, you're, you're, you know, we all we, we talk about on the show, and I try to, whenever I talk about reparations, defining it, we talk about the five forms of reparations from the United Nations, and compensation is one. So, yeah, we do, we're not taking compensation, individual compensation or collective compensation off of the table. And, and so, and then Europeans don't really get to determine, you know, the forms that reparations will take. And so I, I agree with you on that, and that compensation is something that, you know, is a part of reparations, uh, individual as, as well as collective payments. Um, one of the things I do just want to add in closing um, uh, about Dr. Jennifer Harvey, I was saying that uh, I had spoken with, a, um, a, again, a European-American man, actually, who is uh, making a film about reparations, and uh, he spent some time with her. Um, she's a college professor in Iowa, and one of the things that she's doing locally is working on trying to get some remediation for um, African descendants whose homes were um, destroyed and really the whole neighborhood community businesses as well as homes were destroyed when uh, a highway was um, put through the community. So I don't know much detail about that or the status of that, but I just wanted to say that as an example of how she's um, you know, trying to, I guess, walk what she preaches in terms of doing something to at least address a particular uh, current um, concern of people of African descent. Yeah. So, um, so we have several clips lined up. I think we could get to all of them. The rest of the clips are more about three to five minutes. Um, so, um, and I just wanted to mention too, while I'm thinking about it, that you know there are. Uh, at one point, there was an organization which is pretty much um, not in existence anymore, but there was an organization called CURE, which is called Cajuns United for Reparations and Emancipation. And actually, they were based uh, here in Atlanta, where I'm from. And, you know, several times so I ended up being on panels with them. Um, and, I, I, and I remember being somewhat, um, as I said, I guess, skeptical of, again, of their integrity, of their um, commitment to uh, reparations, but over time I began to um, see that they were sincere as well uh, about their commitment to reparations. It's unfortunate that we don't have a, a group like that right now, um, even when we would have our national convention in Atlanta and sometimes in other cities, they would schedule uh, their conference simultaneous with ours, but at a different location. And then we would go and speak to their conference, and sometimes there were some send members to certain um, particular events that we hosted during our conference. And um, so, yeah, but we do have some similar groups to Cure, which is um, having this conversation. One is I want to mention is coming to the table, and they actually put forward. Uh, that's really a, it's actually really actually a multicultural um, um, group. And um, but really focusing on racial um, uh, reconciliation as well, and they have a, a reparations platform that they've put forward uh, suggestions of what uh, someone of African descent can do um, if they're sincere about reparations. And then there's another group which I don't know a lot about, but it's called Showing Up for Racial Justice, also known by the acronym of Surge. Showing up for racial justice, and I'm sure there's there's many other other groups as well that are out there that are doing good work looking at this uh, issue of, of 
uh, reparations from a European perspective and what they can contribute to uh, moving the conversation forward and, and moving it into manifestation and even things that they can do on a tangible basis. So there is another group, um, African Socialist Party, as led by um, Chairman Omali Yeshatela, and he has a component of his group, uh, his organization, his formation, that actually um, works with European uh, allies as well to um Give them in support of, of uh, reparations. And so this clip is, uh, I was trying to figure out if I wanted to um, qualify it before we played it. I think I will. It's a, it's a little bit, the narrator is, uh, the, is, a, is an interesting personality, so I'll just leave it like that. But, you know, uh, you'll, you'll get the point when you, when you hear, hear from them. So it's an African-American who is the narrator, but these they're speaking to um, European-Americans uh, about the so. y'all. So I was just chilling outside by the sun because I can do that because I'm black. And then white Jesus came to me. White Jesus was like, God, I said, what white Jesus? And he was like, you need to train male Saxons. I said, why white Jesus? He was like, because just like dogs, they need training. I said, okay, I'll do it. So now I'm going to show you these well-trained male Saxons, toilet seat complexion individuals, okay? Disciples of white Jesus, okay? So let's talk to them real quick and let's see what they have to say. Uhuru? Uhuru. Do you owe reparations? Absolutely. Why you say that? Wait, who is you? Beryl Shepley. Uhuru Beryl. <laughs> now, you owe me some money. <laughs> okay, you owe me reparations. Absolutely. Why is that? Because every freedom that I have and have taken for granted for my entire life, has been made possible by wealth that my ancestors stole. Uhuru! Mm -hmm. Good. Uhuru! Uhuru! What your name is? Jackson. Uhuru Jackson, you owe me reparations. I do. Why that? Because I have benefited from the wealth that was stolen from mm -hmm. you. Tell as it. have all my ancestors, um, the ones who owned slaves and the ones who did not, the Jews, in uh, the white Jews in Hungary. You better tell on the white Jews. Say that again. The white Jews in Hungary. The fake Jews. Yes, fake white Jews. Mm -hmm. Fake white Jews. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you unite with reparations. Completely. Uhuru. Uhuru. What's your name is again? Jackson. Uhuru Jackson. Uhuru. Uhuru. What's up, Uhuru? Yep, you heard him, y'all. He's a huru. Huru. Yahuru. Where you from? Seattle. Mm-hmm. He raised around all nothing but but African people, y'all. So he don't know nothing about being white. He don't like white people. Ain't that right? All white people owe reparations, though. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ain't that right? That's true. And what your name is? Prince. Uhuru Prince. Uhuru. Now, why you open reparations? Because as a white person, I sit on the pedestal of colonialism and mm. slavery that built not only the wealth of this country, but the whole European world. Therefore, all white people owe reparations, and we're coming to get it. Uhuru! You better tell it. Yeah, we're coming to get it. Uhuru! 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 What your name is? Jesse. Jesse, you owe me reparations. Correct. And I want it. When do I want it? Now. When do I want it? Now. And you gonna get it for me? Yes, indeed. All right. Why you owe reparations? Because every opportunity and amenity I have uh, has been at the expense of my black and brown brothers and sisters around the world, they uh, 
everything in this country is soaked, saturated with the blood of slavery, mm. genocide. Even the, the times that I've had to scrape for dollars in my life, they still bared the face of the slave master, genocidal maniac. And I know full well that even the homeless white man on the street corner is going to get more. He's going to get more head nods and ham sandwiches than the black man across mm. the street. <laughs> so every white person, no matter how little you got or think you got, you owe money. I owe money. And like my brother Prince said, like my comrade Prince said, if you don't give it, we're gonna come take come it. Come to take it. Uh huh. And I've uh-huh. seen Prince take it. All right. We by a church across the street, and Prince ran up on this old white man. What you say up to the old white man coming out the church? I asked if you want to hear the gospel of reparations. <sighs> hey, Uhuru. Uhuru. What your name is? Virginia. Uhuru, Virginia. Are you talking about good in this sun, Virginia? You always look good. Thank you. <laughs> now you gotta hurry up because you gotta get out the okay, sun, girl. You ain't got no sunscreen, girl. We gotta save your skin. Hurry up, girl. Hurry up. Okay. You know the sun don't like you, girl. Come on now. Okay. Every white person does owe reparations, and that is because we owe that money uh, for the colonial oppression uh, that our ancestors have, you know, done to African people, and it continues to this day right here in the U.S. Mm. Not just all over the world, but here in the U.S. So all white people, no matter who you are, you do owe reparations. You owe them right now, and you need to pay them right now. Yes. And you can go to uhurusolidarity.org and click on the button that says pay reparations. That's what you need to do. You need to do it now. Uhuru! Uhuru! Say one more thing. Guess you might see them t-shirts real quick. Mm-hmm. Black power. Uhuru. Hey, just like the chairman says. Uh, chairman who? They might not chairman know Chairman Omali Eshetela, the yes. African People's Socialist Party and the African Socialist International. Mm. A lot of white people will say they don't want to pay reparations because they ain't have nothing to do with slavery. It happened so long ago. But what we have to understand is we are the inheritors of the social wealth that was created by slavery. And African people and other colonized people are the inheritors of the, self, the social despair and the social poverty that is the legacy of slavery. Uhuru, and that is the power of African internationalism, turning cave these into revolutionaries uh-huh. for African people. Uhuru? 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 So you heard it here. If you are ready, if you are white, male Saxon, okay, totally sick complexion individual, salty American, and you are ready to join the revolution, where can you go? You can go to uhurusolidarity.org and click on the red button that says pay reparations. Now. And pay those reparations when? Now. Reparations? Now. Uhuru? Uhuru? Hey, I want to show you something. All right, all right. So, uh, would love to hear your your take on that video, brother. Uh, before I say that, though, uh, before we get there, I just wanted to say, um, for those who don't know, the word Uhuru means um, freedom. Um, yeah, I, I really don't have a take on it except for, I mean, you can't argue with the truth. I didn't hear any lies yeah. being told. I heard nothing but the straight, unadulterated truth from some white yeah. people who say they owe reparations. So I, I don't have any critique. All right. And by the way, that video, interestingly enough, has has over a million 300,000 plus views, which I think is interesting. So, um, yeah. So, again, um, Brother um, Chairman Omar Yesitella has been doing work, and and he has um, developed a, a um, group of, of European Americans around the United States and possibly around the world that um, support um, reparations specifically 
And, um, you know, so just wanted to acknowledge that because I, you know, you know, started out the show talking heavily about, you know, church and religious support for it. But, you know, there are also people who understand it from a political, right. uh, historical, economic um, perspective as well. I mean, so, yeah. from a political perspective, you have to have mm-hmm. the way politics work in this country, at least the way I have observed them to work, is that. You have to have public support to pass certain big ticket items or big ticket legislation. That has, mm-hmm. you know, been what I've seen. And while reparations has made much headway, um, again, over a hundred sponsors of the House Bill HR forty. I'm not sure how many in the Senate, but it's never had this kind of political support in Congress before. So it's making great headway. But still, the public is way behind. And we know the public is who? The public is white people. When they say the public, they talking about what white people think. Okay? And so this is just evidence, though, that if you formulate the right argument, if you run the right campaign, the public can be won over. That's all I wanted to, to add. Yeah. And there's a survey, um, I need to keep it handy somewhere, where it, it looked at um, people's support for reparations, and but what it did was it broke it down by age. And so what we find, obviously, is that, um, you know, say European Americans who, you know, over 60 or over 50, you know, definitely um, voted more heavily against reparations. But the younger, like under 30, you know, voted more in favor of reparations. You know why so, that is? You know, I have a theory of why, why that is, Brother Jamoke. <laughs> education. Education. Who? Education. Yeah. Yes. Now, when you yes. think about racism in this country and they start talking about racism or white supremacy, um, which is the same thing, um, they will talk about how the sons, uh, but primarily the Daughters of the Confederacy, how they influenced public school textbooks on how they taught about the Civil War. And a lot of it was very sympathetic to the South, painted them in a sympathetic light. And so if you Mm -hmm. as an older white person growing up, especially in the South, but I'm sure it was, you know, pretty much in the North as well, and you're made to feel like, oh, wait a minute, Civil War wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights, or these were interns, as we've seen some of these Texas school school textbooks try to portray uh, victims of slavery as interns, you know. They were interns. So, so I say miseducation of white people is the primary reason why white people in a majority do not support reparations. And so that tells me we need a public education campaign. Definitely, definitely, yes, and for ourselves as well. But you know, I think most of us, you know, most surveys have shown that the support for reparations is very high already. However, I do think that more education is needed so people be more knowledgeable about what it is and you know what we're going to be demanding and what we will, what will be what I say is going to be our bottom line because I think it's going to be like a negotiation, like we'll propose something and they'll come back with X. And we'll say, no, that's not acceptable. We need, you know, to meet at least these minimum 
basic, but we won't be able to do that if we don't have the support of, you know, a critical mass of people who will be willing to back that up and saying that's not acceptable. So, yeah, the mass education for um, the mass, the major population in the United States as well as for ourselves as well, you know, we need to continue to amp that up. So the um, the next clip we have set up is um, Katrina Brown. Actually, um, years ago she produced a film called Traces of the Trade where she looked at her um, family history and being one of the largest slave trading families in the United States and actually went on a pilgrimage which um, her and other members of her family went to Africa as well as went to Cuba where they also owned land. Uh, where our family had owned land and a plantation there and then, you know, came back to the United States and had some real um, uh, deep conversations around processing what they had learned about their family and their role in slavery and everything. And um, she, she, you know, herself and other members of her family have become um, advocates for reparations. So she actually spoke at the hearing, which we've talked about before, that was held on June 19th on HR 40. So we're Listen to that clip now. Ms. Katrina Brown is our next witness. She's a freelance speaker, educator, and facilitator. She produced and directed the documentary film Traces of the Trade, a story from the deep north, which she made in response to her discovery that her Rhode Island ancestors were the largest slave trading family in the United States history. She also currently serves as a consultant for the Episcopal Church's initiatives on racial healing, justice, and reconciliation, authoring a 10-session race dialogue series for congregational use. And I must parenthetically say that when we were doing our apology, the Episcopal Church beat us to it. They were leaders on that effort. She has an MA in theology for the Pacific School of Religion, where she wrote a thesis on film and civic dialogue, and you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Cohen and Ranking Member Johnson and Representative Jackson Lee for the opportunity to speak this morning. I grew up in Philadelphia, six blocks from Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell. I am a deep-seated patriot. So it was devastating to learn from my grandmother at age 28 that our ancestors had been slave traders and to discover that the DeWolfs were, in fact, the largest slave-trading family in United States history, bringing over 12,000 Africans to the Americas in chains. That these were my Rhode Island ancestors, and that Rhode Island turns out to be the state that sent more ships to Africa than any other, required me to reorganize my brain. The amnesia in my family matched the larger amnesia of the North, the self-serving myths of being always on the right side of history. I could no longer carry a sense of moral superiority relative to white Southerners, nor a sense of innocence vis-a-vis black claims on the white conscience. I decided to initiate a family journey to retrace the triangle trade, Nine relatives joined me, two of which are here today, and the documentary Traces of the Trade is the result, the subtitle being A Story from the Deep North. What we learned, how we stumbled, how we grew during that journey led me to become a passionate believer in the importance of reckoning with the history and legacy of slavery, a believer in personal and family reckonings, institutional ones, and larger national reckoning. And with that in the need for repair or reparative action 
which can and should take many, many forms. I express wholehearted support for H.R. 40, and I've met countless people of all backgrounds who believe in this form of national effort as well. I know there are many who strenuously object to the premise that we need this reckoning. The pushback I hear most often is, that's your problem given your ancestors, but it has nothing to do with me. It's understandable that people distance themselves. I'll focus on two reasons. One, most of us learned a distorted history of slavery in school. So as white Americans, most of us don't realize our connection to it. Second, there's a natural instinct to avoid that which can bring feelings of shame about our people, about the country that we love. To address the first issue, here's a quick rundown of historical facts I had not been taught. That the North was deeply implicated, that slavery was legal in northern states for over, 20, over 200 years, that northerners up and down the economic spectrum made their livings and businesses tied to slave trade and slavery, that northern mills processed cotton harvested by enslaved people. The Midwest and the West were implicated. They grew food to feed the South, where land was devoted to cash crops like cotton harvested by the enslaved. Consumers throughout the country were implicated in their everyday purchases of clothing, coffee, sugar, rice, tobacco. People who immigrated from Europe after slavery were implicated. I have Irish, French, and German immigrant ancestors who came to the United States in the 19th century, worked in factories, struggled, but they were given access to the American dream. Why were waves of immigrants flocking here? Because it was the land of opportunity. Why was the economy booming? Why were there jobs? Because it had been built largely on unpaid labor. Once here, European immigrants got to systematically leapfrog over black families with devastating consequences up to the present day. So slavery built the nation. It turned, turning us into an economic powerhouse due mostly to, I must say, good folk who participated in mundane ways and looked the other way. Now for the second big reason for pushback against this bill, the emotions that it stirs up. And I'd speak directly to my fellow white Americans on this. First, fear not. Though it's counterintuitive, I've seen over and over again the liberating power of facing this painful past. Second, white people tend to imagine that black people are angry at us. But in my experience, black Americans don't blame us for the deeds of bygone ancestors, but are rightfully angry that we don't just drop the defensiveness or the self-absorbed guilt and sign up to work with them shoulder to shoulder to tackle the legacies that are still with us. Third, when we let go of defensiveness or guilt, we can get to a healthy and shared grief, which opens the door to sober, sacred, respectful, creative, collective conversation about how to make things right. There are scores of organizations that are already able to attest to this, the power of this work. They know, I know, that the process that a commission would help the country embark upon could be a transformative, 
positive and life-giving thing for the country as a whole, a beautiful thing. It is good for the soul of a person, a people, and of a nation to set things right. Thank you. All right. That's Katrina Brown um, speaking at the June 19th hearing on H.R. 40 held in Washington, D.C., 2019. Uh, I I think she laid out some very good, again, arguments as to why Europeans, uh, the American public, as you said, the American public should get behind reparations um, and even, you know, addressing to even addressing some of the pushback and over, you know, coming up, you know, way that she thought. She mentioned education. Some of that she mentioned the miseducation about slavery. Right. In school. Right. <laughs> sure enough. Yeah. I think also this commission, you know, I've heard people over the, and not even connected to reparations, but talk about apartheid in South Africa and how they had a truth and reconciliation commission. Mm-hmm. But largely that truth and reconciliation, I feel like failed because there were no reparations paid, which they're still trying mm-hmm. to attain today because of, of, of the land. They want to repatriate that land back to those who it was stolen from. So, so right. I mean, the commission that the H.R. 40 bill would create could also be known as a truth and reconciliation. But there can be no reconciliation without the reparations component, which I think South Africa's present condition and political atmosphere demonstrates. Definitely, yeah. Um, yeah. There have been conversations around that, setting up a similar commission there, similar to, um, and then it was also one in Rwanda and, and other places as well. Um, you know, one of the one of the pushbacks, though, that people say about that is that, you know, that people were able to come and speak their truth about what they had done, and, and particularly Europeans in terms of how they cooperated with the, the um, apartheid regime. And did you know all kinds of um, you know heinous crimes and, and torture and everything, and with the condition that they could say that and nothing would happen to them um, in terms of being you know arrested or persecuted in any kind of way, which I think is also somewhat problematic of having a truth and reconciliation. But that's how that's the sort of premise of how it works is that by allowing people to come and tell their story, so that so because it, it provided there was families that felt you know that you know, finally got some uh, peace of mind in terms of what um, happened to their particular um, loved one based on some of the stories that were, were told, uh, which probably would not have been told if they hadn't had that um, commission. So, yeah, that's a, um, a, a, another whole conversation I think we, you know, may want to think about having uh, around Truth and, Truth and Reconciliation Commission with reparations. Um, so yeah, so uh, I know we, I think we are kind of out of time. I'm not sure if we have time to throw on the last clip. We yeah, talked we, about her a lot time. already, Marion Williamson. We got time. Um, Take as much as you need. Okay. Well, yeah. So we'll we'll um, we'll close out with her clip, and then we will um, 
just have a few closing remarks after after she after her clip. Again, Marion Williamson, um, spiritual activist, uh, current Democratic presidential candidate uh, for the U.S., uh, speaking on uh, reparations. The same psychological and emotional and spiritual forces that prevail within the journey of an individual prevail within the journey of a nation, because all that a nation is is a collection of individuals. So if you're clued in as to what changes one life, you're clued in as to what changes the world. And what we know is that in order to transform a life, you can't just change things on the outside. You have to change things on the inside, too. And among other things, you have to be very clear, brutally honest with yourself about your character defects. You have to be willing to atone, you have to be willing to make amends, and you have to be willing to change. It's time for the United States to do the same in some areas where we have character defects as a nation, in areas where we have not lived, either in the past or in the present, as who we say that we are. We have not lived and we are not living on the principles on which we purport to stand. One of these areas is the issue of race. Now, we had slavery in the United States, obviously. We abolished slavery. But at the end of the Civil War in 1865, even though 40 acres and a mule was promised by General Sherman to every formerly enslaved person, in most cases, that acreage and that mule were not given, and even in the cases where they were, in most cases, they were then taken away. What that means is that full economic integration into the new condition of freedom was never achieved. In fact, quite the opposite. Throughout the American South, black code laws were passed, which were to ensure the subjugation of the formerly enslaved population. John Birch Society, Ku Klux Klan, lynchings, the institutionalization of white supremacy and segregation. And those horrors that next phase of violence against black people in America was not fundamentally addressed until the 1960s and the civil rights movement. And once again, was, was progress achieved? Yes, progress was achieved. But we have not finished the job of full reconciliation. Not only that, in many ways we have slid backwards. We have actually chipped away at the Voting Rights Act. Mass incarceration is a horrifying example of an institutionalized racial discrimination in criminal sentencing. We have a problem in our times, and we need to address this problem, not just in incremental ways, but in fundamental ways. I propose a plan for reparations for slavery. Just as the German nation has paid $89 billion in reparations to Jewish organizations since World War II, and just as the United States has paid $20,000 in reparations to descendants of those who were in Japanese internment camps during World War II, I propose a $100 billion plan of reparations to be paid over 10 years. I submit that we should choose a council of esteemed African-American leaders who were given over a 10-year period, $10 billion a year, and this money should be dispersed as they deem most appropriate in order for economic and educational revitalization to be achieved within the black community. It's time. It's time for a fundamental effort. It's time for us to do for future generations what other generations have done for us, to rise to the occasion in our time and make the kind of significant progress that will ensure that to the best of our ability, Ancient wrongs will be addressed, and new possibilities, 
new fairness, new liberty, new justice, which in this case, in many cases, was never fully achieved, shall be achieved in our time. All right. I was Marion Williamson. Um, just to add a little bit to that, um, again, we've already discussed how we feel like it's not appropriate for you know, the Europeans to tell us what the formal reparations will be. Um, even when she said 100 billion, she's also has said between 100 billion to 500 billion. But even still, again, that proposal is is honorable, but it's not sufficient as well as we've already talked about the United Nations definition of reparations, which includes a whole lot more than just financial compensation. And um, so we did want to just address that off the back. And even I think in the last presidential debate, um, when the issue of reparations came, well, she acknowledged that it really would be in the trillions of dollars, but that her proposal was really just a start, you know. So, um, and again, trillions of dollars still being just one aspect of, of reparations, um, the financial aspect of it. And Brother but, Jamoke, um, um, yes, sir. there is a flaw to her, her proposal. Again, you know, she's coming from the right place, the right spirit and what have you. And, you know, it's for the people to debate. People put for proposals and then we debate those proposals. One major flaw that I, an issue that I have with what we just heard was that mm-hmm. we're going to select a group of quote unquote African-American leaders and give them right. the money and they decide how it's right. spent. Well, you know, we really don't have any quote-unquote African-American leaders. I, I know we, you know, vote for Congress people and we have some black ones in there and what have you, but in terms of, let's say, a nation within the nation, we don't really have no leaders. And I just have have an issue with, well, how would what would be the criteria of choosing these quote-unquote leaders? And, and what have you. And and then, too, I think that it should go into the money should be individually sent to the individuals, okay? Not to a group of leaders to then decide who gets what or how the money is spent. I think the individual who is old can make that decision for themselves. And they can just call it a stimulus check. You know, how much was the stimulus when the U.S. economy almost crashed so the U.S. government sent out all this money uh, um, uh, to the population, which then, you know, caused the economy to recover? So, I mean, I also look at reparations, individual checks, as a stimulus because you know we're going to put it right back into the economy, buying things that we need and things that we want. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, again, like I said off the bat that, you know, the fact that the not so much debating, I was even not even getting into the details of a proposal, but just the fact that she even gave any proposal, like I said, isn't appropriate, you know, in my opinion, yes. that it should be what we determine what form it should take. So, yeah, and then you're right. I mean, if you break down the specifics of a proposal, and somebody had done the math, which I don't remember how much, uh, $100 billion per individual African-American, if it was, you know, the way that you should propose it, would be, um, and, and I don't remember the dollar amount now, but it, it, it's a small dollar amount. I'm thinking two, three or four, five thousand or something like that. I can't remember the exact amount. 
And then even if it goes up to 500 billion, you know, that still was not a, a lot of money per person. Um, so yeah, there, and, and so yeah, there are, are definitely, like I said, flaws if you want to look at the specifics of a proposal because, you know, again, like, I don't even think she, you know, still didn't really have a right, in my opinion, even to make any proposals. She had to say, well, whatever it is that you all say. That's one thing that you, going back to the organization I mentioned about Cure, that's what Cure used to say when they would be asked. They would say, we support whatever the black people say they want for reparations, for full and complete reparations. That was always their line. They never said, well, we think it should be this for education or da-da-da-da-da. They always said, whatever black people say that reparations, whatever they say is full and complete reparations for them, that's what we support. You know, and again, that was their principal position. But, yeah, so, again, you've been listening to Conversation Reparations, uh, sponsored by the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. And stay tuned for our next episode, which will be September 16th. And um, we look forward to to any comments or or that you have about this show and we thank you for listening and supporting in cobra uh in cobra you can find us online at www.encobraonline.org that's n c o b r a online.org you can reach me directly at reparations the letter j at gmail.com and i just want to thank uh, brother scotty reed for uh, supporting us with this show and doing the engineering um, for for all of these shows and supporting us to uh, help us produce these shows for on behalf of Encoba. So thank you. Thanks a lot, brother. America bounced the check, and no, it ain't all about the dough, but my people still pull reparations and do, so just give me what you owe. No, we won't renounce the debt, America bounced the check, and no, it ain't all about the dough, but my people still pull reparations and do, so just give me what you owe. Capitalists are the enemy, but we get treated like the villain when prison is homicide, cause they making a killing, and war generates more loot, so that's why Bush is going off,